0: Welcome to the 4th Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. We're nearing Biden's first 100 days in office. Let's get a handle on the media angle. Today, I'm joined by Ari Fleischer of Fox News and previously press secretary in the Bush White House. This is episode 16. From his time working in the Bush White House and dealing with the press to his time working at CNN reflecting on 9-11 nearly 20 years later, we start with how the media is covering this new Biden administration. All right, so let's start with where we are right now. We're coming up on 100 days of President Biden in office, and uh, you have been in and around lots of uh, past administration. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, not so much on the politics side. I'm, I'm really interested in the media angle, and there, I think there's two sides of the media angle to the Biden first 100 days. So So let's start with how the media is covering this administration. I've obviously written in Fourth Watch, been critical of some elements of it. But what what do you think as you you sort of look at it broadly, the media covering this new administration post-Trump?
1: Oh, my goodness. The coverage is so soft. When you compare the way the press lunged out of their seats to raise questions, to go after Donald Trump, right from the first moment, even before Trump was president during the transition throughout the campaign, and you compare it to the soft coverage that they gave Joe Biden during the campaign, which has been extended into the White House, it's night and day.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, that certainly, certainly broadly speaking, that does seem to be be the case so far. And uh, I, I wondered a little bit, because I, I want to talk about Trump in a little bit, but I, I think one of the lessons, if there was a positive side to it, it was like the media learned to be aggressive with power uh, in in maybe ways that they hadn't been over the last eight years during the Trump administration. I had hoped that maybe there might be some uh, lasting effect of that into this new one, although it does seem the new administration knew uh, a new way of, of going about
1: it. And so let me put a point on that, because as much as they were aggressive to those in power in the last administration, I don't think they learned how to be aggressive to power. I think what the media did in the last many years is recognize who their customers were and appeal to their customers. The breakdown in media-watching habits in the United States in the last 10 years, particularly with the rise of the internet and the ability now to purchase the news you want to see and hear, along with the decline of advertisers in the media, has changed the media for the worse, to the point now where they're less... Thinking about being aggressive to power and more thinking about how can we deliver to our readers and viewers the news that they already believe in? Yeah, and I do. It, yeah. It's a terrible reinforcement cycle.
0: I wonder about that also, right? As everything gets so fractured now, you don't need large audiences to to have a you know a solid business plan, and and that goes not just for like these new digital upstarts, but for you know CBS News and ABC News. I mean, you don't have to. You're you're just by definition not now going to have a giant audience. So when you start getting smaller and smaller, do you just kind of not care about the people on on certain sides that that you say, oh, you know, we're just going to cater to something that keeps our our
1: business model? going. Well, I think that's exactly what happened. And it, it, it was a combination of two things when President Trump got elected in 2016. One was reporters were offended by Trump. They didn't like him. They didn't like him as a person. They took moral offense at him. They didn't like his policies. So you had that natural umbrage that reporters who were all mostly cut from a liberal cloth share. And it matched then with the revulsion of their readership I take to the New York Times. There's a Pew poll that shows 91 percent of all New York Times readers are Democrat or lean Democrat. Uh, during one of the newsroom breakdowns at the New York Times, the top editor of the New York Times acknowledged that Trump readers probably don't read Trump voters probably don't read the New York Times. He's right. Right. So you have this confluence of revulsion by reporters on a moral level matched with their readers and subscribers who had moral revulsion toward Trump. And it just became the business model. Go after the guy. It feels good as a journalist and our readers love it. Mm-hmm. That. Is I think what led to this incredibly intense anti-Trump four-year period of unfair coverage.
0: Yeah, I was going to get to Trump in a second, but I, I let, let's stay here because I, I think that there's, there's there I, I totally agree, and there's two other elements I feel like social media really had you know rose you know certainly during the end of the Obama era, but but certainly during Trump, and and there is this kind of feedback loop where you know you reporters get kind of cheered on by what feels like so many people, but really maybe a couple thousand people on Twitter, and everything feels really good that way. So that that's one thing. But the other one talk about being revolted by Trump. I I totally agree. But then there are also people who were at Trump's wedding in 2005 who then it almost I don't know if it was guilt uh, or they felt that they had maybe somehow helped his rise and ultimately, you know, winning the the GOP nomination and then the presidency by uh, by being maybe too friendly with him, you know, at cocktail parties in New York City 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, but I think it's one thing to go to a wedding and rub shoulders with the guy who comes from kind of the entertainment slash business world, the famous personality world. Right. Another one, that person's in charge of policy for the country. So, yeah, they can like him when he's in his entertainment world. And then they just shift it to the moral revulsion of hating him because of policy, which is another problem that I think journalism writ large has. They're cut from such a similar cloth. They really do lean on policy. They take sides on policy, on politics. It's just the way they are. And then their readership broke down, so it became easy to do.
0: Right. Yeah. I think we've certainly seen that with uh, with the Biden era as well. And I. I... Uh, go going with Trump a second because you you uh, notably did not vote for Trump in 2016 but did in 2020. Um, I, I believe you also said after after January 6th that you wouldn't be speaking out in support of him anymore at least from a you know a political angle. Um, but uh, one of the things I, I've I've been fascinated by in the last couple months is. The fact that he has, you know, successfully after January sixth, the the social company, social media companies have deplatformed him in, in a very real way. And I had I had a suspicion they might just let him go back on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram after Joe Biden got kind of settled into office. That doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, what do you think of that? You're you're someone you and I are, are on Twitter. Uh, what is mm-hmm. Twitter like with the former president of the United States banned from that platform?
1: Well. You know, I've got mixed feelings about it because they're a private organization. Private organizations can do things according to their own rules. And if they don't want them, they don't want them. And we as consumers, we can get off of Twitter if we want. Twitter's kind of enticing. So do we want to take that step on behalf of Donald Trump? Uh, That's why Twitter gets away with these things. But the bigger issue, and it really is dividing the country and alienating people on the right, is this cultural sense that society has its finger on the thumbs, uh, its thumb on the scale. That society writ large, culture, movies, Hollywood, entertainment, big tech, education, are all pushing in a liberal direction. And it feels almost as if conservatives are a bunch of individuals floating out there where we don't organize the same way. We don't have the same abilities to influence society. There sure are a lot of us because Look at how many people voted for Donald Trump. Right, but the Democrats and the liberals and culture are really organized in a cohesive way that makes it easier for them to advocate and achieve and suppress. The right does not really have corresponding institutions. It has a lot of individualism.
0: Yeah, that that is that that is interesting. And, and you talk about individualism. There there is almost a conservative principle against, you know, getting a group together to, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to assert power in, in a specific direction. Uh, you know, I, I, maybe we've seen a little bit of loosening that with, uh, with, with boycotts now on the other side of, of, you know, people on the right, uh, saying to boycott baseball, for example, uh, for, for, you know, they're moving out of the all-star game out of, uh, out of Georgia. Uh, but, but yeah, that, that is not generally what we see in it. And, And certainly when a media goes in one direction, Uh, They what they choose to amplify is, you know, obviously is pointed in one direction also.
1: Yeah, notably, Donald Trump is the one who's leading the charge for boycotts. Right. You know, leave it to Donald Trump to be the one who thinks differently from conservative ideology. Uh, But Republicans and conservatives are in a very uncomfortable position now where we recognize that we may hate it, but we may have to do it. Because if you don't, it's unilateral disarmament. And and take what happened with the All-Star Game. Talk about baseball for a second. One of the reasons the commissioner took this action was he was only feeling pressure from the left. So whether he was right or wrong about the law, of course he's wrong. All he felt was the left organizing and telling him players are going to boycott showing up in Atlanta for the game. So you need to do something. And that was a well-orchestrated pressure campaign that directly reached the commissioner of major league baseball nobody on the right was doing anything similar and so looking ahead one of the lessons for the right is you might not like it but if you don't engage in a lot of these tactics that the left uses you're going to keep complaining going on conservative media and saying it's not fair and getting beat so maybe it's time for the right to change its tactics
0: yeah, it, it, it's interesting. There was a, a Twitter thread that uh, CNN's Jake Tapper put out recently uh, a couple of weeks ago about this, uh, the All-Star game. And and it was really, it was kind of uh, telling, I think, what he said. And I, I, I don't doubt what he said for a minute. He said that Major League Baseball officials made the decision because if they didn't, the decision would be left to indiv- individual players, some of whom no doubt would have been indiv- individually boycotting the game. It would have become political and you know, in his mind, they acted because they were trying to protect the individual players from this, you know, in, you know, the, the onslaught of media attention and badgering that would have come from from this. Um, but by that admission, is that would have come from the media, you know, members of the media. I'm not necessarily Jake Tapper personally, but but certainly the industry would have then turned their sights onto the players so that so the, the commissioners, oh, right, you know, I'm making a business decision. I'll take the heat, you know, and the players don't have to. Um, but that, that by definition, is saying that the, the media is going to start badgering players about this, which seems so arbitrary.
1: Yeah, you know, number one, it read to me reading that thread that commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred, spoke to jake tapper and did it on the basis of you can't use my name and that's where jake led with his thread that's a guess but i bet it's a pretty good one Um, but the problem here is bigger what's really been exposed now because baseball cracked and moved the game succumbed to pressure is this is contagious it's not just major league baseball who now has this disease it's spreading to the Olympics. It's spreading to other sports. Other organizations are getting asked questions about hosting games in Georgia, hosting games in other states that have laws about election integrity and safeguards of election process that some people are going to object to, where now other sports groups outside of baseball are getting asked, are you going to move your game? Are you going to play here? Are you going to play there? Baseball's cracking. Delta's cracking. All the corporations who craft to liberal pressure here have now invited a world of more cracking and more pressure. Supply has created more demand. And, and that's what happens. And there was, there was Steve such a better answer they all could have given. Why couldn't baseball and Delta simply have said, let's start with baseball? Baseball should have said, there are some good and thoughtful people who think this law is a mistake in Georgia. There are some good and thoughtful people who think this law has appropriate safeguards. The purpose of baseball is to bring people together, and that's why we stay out of partisan politics. It's not hard. Right. If baseball had done that, that, too, would have shielded its players. You know, I think most players don't want to practice politics. They just want to play the game. Right. If MLB had said that, the players could have said, I agree with the commissioner. I'm not, in, I'm not taking sides.
0: Yeah, it's (laughs) we get into like what performative action, you know, performative uh, taking a stand versus actually taking a stand. And you you could make an argument, certainly Major League Baseball, by doing what they did, took a real stand. But what are the ramifications of that? Why is Stacey Abrams and Senator Warnock against the action taken? Well, because of the actual ramifications this has. This is not just, you know. I, I, I don't want to get political, take a knee or whatever. But, you know, there's there are actions that could have been done that felt like you're taking a stand without actually doing something that is going to so disrupt and hurt the community uh, in Atlanta uh, because of what they of what they sort of jumped to conclusions here about.
1: And yeah, no, no question. You know, the other thing they could have done is held the All-Star Game and then sponsored a big forum on voter rights.
0: Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Voting drive at the All-Star Game sure. or something. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i mean there's other things that could have been done um but they did it and now the contagion has spread and everybody's going to deal with it in other sports and other corporations
0: think cancel culture is a new thing just wait until you hear about what happened when fleischer started working with tiger woods more than 10 years ago as part of his sports communication practice I know you've got uh, Fletcher Communications, but specifically on the sports side, you've done a lot of work um, uh, consulting with, you know, from from a communications perspective with different right. sports uh, entities. And, you know, doing research for this, it actually because it feels like we're in sort of this new phenomenon, whether it started with Trump or was exacerbated by Trump, you know, it feels very new, this idea of like, you know, cancel culture and the media kind of working to, uh, you know, sort of overreacted or in, in this, the biggest, most hope hyperbole possible about these, these sort of incidents. But I, I ended up stumbling on something that ESPN wrote uh, about you in Tiger Woods, working with Tiger Woods back in 2010. And, you know, this was 11 years ago now. Now. and you know it was like how could tiger woods you know turn to uh harry fleischer to you know who did, was a former press secretary for george w Bush? i mean it's like wh- and and that ended up leading to that relationship uh you know coming apart uh so i i wonder as someone who's kind of you know been through this before uh maybe it doesn't feel like such a new phenomenon this cancel culture idea
1: well you know in my sense um That was me voluntarily walking away from it because I recognized that the press was covering me and not Tiger. Right. And so I actually went to Tiger and to Tiger's people and I said, I'm not helping you anymore. And so that was a pretty amicable decision to put the client first. Um, But I do run a sports communications company. I've worked for numerous athletes and leagues and commissioners, including major league baseball for five years, um, some 10 years ago. And, What you do see is people who need help on a lot of the basics of how to handle some of these issues when they leap off the sports page and onto the front page. And that's where you see a lot of these issues. And this is also where you see people think that because they're getting a bunch of calls that they have to do something, that they're under pressure, as opposed to being leaders and not taking the bait of what reporters or what pressure groups are trying to suggest to them. And that's what I try to do for my clients as I work them through these issues.
0: It's uh, it's another thing that made, made me think of this because uh, you, you could make an argument that you know, whether it's taking the bait or jumping to just so, kind of a ridiculous scenario that we're in now, nothing really felt more... 2020 cancel culture than when the Washington Redskins became the Washington football team because they couldn't figure out any other way to not offend someone, I guess, in the short term. So they just named themselves the football team. And you also had previously worked uh, on a team uh, working with the, the Redskins back in 2014 through this. Um, again, you know, reading the, the, the just totally stupid and hyperbolic headlines from 2014, Washington Redskins hire all-star team of villains. It's like totally over the top, Uh, what what do you think of that scenario now that now, seven years later, this is where we're at?
1: Well, number one, going to the Redskins, just to touch on the substance of it for a second, it it was the same liberal bend in reporters that drove reporters against the Redskins. When survey after survey, including one in the Washington Post, showed a survey of Native Americans that they were fine with the name. They actually liked having a team named after the Redskins. Uh, There was no opposition in the Indians among Native Americans, or very little. It's kind of like so many of these issues now where you see a lot of liberals speaking out on behalf of minorities, thinking that they super represent what minorities think.
0: Yeah, white liberals in a lot of instances. I would
1: say. That's right. And that's what the case was with the Redskins. It was a lot of non-Indians saying Indians don't like the name when all the survey research said most Native Americans were fine with the name. Um, you know, as for the coverage of me, that sometimes it comes with the territory. Um, that's why I prefer to do most of my work behind the scenes and help people. And I don't need my name out there. I don't need publicity. I don't seek it. Uh, sometimes it gets out there. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's not. Um, but when have you ever seen the Democrats and liberals who are working in the same space as I do get criticized for, by reporters for working with athletes? Oh, yeah. You don't? No. It's only if it's a conservative working with an athlete that it offends the media once again. If it's a liberal working with an athlete, well, yeah, I can see that. They needed to hire somebody that's some outside expertise. Uh, the hypocrisy keeps going.
0: Coming up, what was CNN like when Fleischer and I worked there? And what does he think of the cable news network now? That's next. But first, it's time for another edition of How Did This Get Published?, Florida has been a target of media criticism related to COVID for a year now, thanks to the outspoken GOP governor of the state, Ron DeSantis. Obviously, we know the 60-minute story, but it's not just 60 minutes. The media focuses on the state over others and exaggerates the reality of the dire situation on the ground. That said, most of the time, there's a lack of context when focused on Florida exclusively. There's still some truth to what's being reported. That was not the case with Yahoo News' report from Alexander Nazarian, headlined Florida COVID numbers face new scrutiny. Ah, is DeSantis hiding COVID deaths? Is he fudging the numbers? Here's the quote. In the case of Florida, the researchers say 4,924 excess deaths should have been counted as resulting from COVID-19, but for the most part were ruled as having been caused by something else, thus lowering Florida's coronavirus fatality count. The implication from Yahoo was shot down in a series of reports from The Washington Post and The Blaze. Florida's confirmed death toll runs a lot closer to the excess toll than does New York's, perhaps in part because New York's first surge overlapped with a period when testing wasn't expansive, pointed out Philip Bump of the Washington Post, noting the data shows quote, nothing unusual about Florida's numbers. And as Leon Wolf at The Blaze pointed out, the study itself admits that it is not able to quantify how many of these excess deaths, if any, were due to COVID-19 or other causes. The 4,924, quote, excess deaths are both not remarkable for the state, lower than many other states, and also not necessarily related to COVID. To Yahoo's credit, I guess, it, ex- it includes experts knocking down the central premise of the piece towards the end of it. Florida doesn't stand out to me, said one, while another told Yahoo, I don't think there's anything egregious going on with the data. Yahoo, of course, is not alone among the media when it comes to irresponsibly focusing on Florida related to COVID, when other states like New York, New Jersey, and Michigan, especially now, have done far worse in their handling of the pandemic. It's rare for an article to so miss the science it renders the entire point of the piece moot. Yahoo News, how did this get published? Back to Ari in a minute, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Ari Fleischer. As someone who has been on the other side of the podium, um, as uh, George W. Bush's uh, White House press secretary in 2001 to uh, 2003, I'm curious also how you see the, the dealings now between the Biden administration and the press. So you look at Jen Psaki, who's there, was a CNN contributor for, for four years uh, in between working in the Obama White House and now now going back behind the podium. Uh, there was this absurd moment recently uh, with the uh, while a, a literal, you know, White House briefing was going on, a president, you know, it, it, the Easter bunny comes in and starts, like, you know, interrupting it. We're having a normal conversation about Georgia voting laws, and all of a sudden the Easter bunny's there, and the press is sort of laughing. It, it, I, I don't know. I, I it, it sort of struck me the wrong way, even though it was, I guess, just a, a silly little moment. What do you think of how uh, the current press secretary is handling the press?
1: Well, let me do it generously for the first go around here. Okay. <laughs> On the one hand, she hasn't been tested yet. If you notice, the room is empty Yeah, because social distancing. She doesn't face what I used to face and what other press secretaries face, which was an intense room full of reporters with the psychology and the, uh, the uh, packed direction of the room really ganged up on the press secretary and made the briefing pretty tough. That's what happens when that room is jam-packed. Right now, the room is five, six empty. Very few reporters are sitting in the seats. There are no reporters standing in the aisles. So maybe when the room gets jam packed again and you have a mob of reporters, they'll go back to their old ways of screaming and interrupting and demanding answers. That comes with the territory when you're a Republican press secretary. The press easily gets offended if the president or a press secretary says something they don't like. So, for example, if I were Joe Biden's press secretary and Joe Biden were a Republican and Joe Biden, the Republican president, said that the Georgia law stops people from voting at five o'clock. And then I had to stand in the briefing room and defend that. I would have a wall of reporters standing in their seats, shouting questions at me, refusing to accept my dodges of that question until they got a scout. Right. That would be the packed psychology and the mood of that room. One, because the room's crowded and you have lots of reporters vying for attention. And two, because if a Republican says it, they go hard after you. With Biden, he gets a pass. It was dutifully asked. Jen gave a dodge and the press went along to the next question. And that's the advantage that Democrats have. The press rises as one in umbrage against a Republican mistake or a Republican misstatement. When it's a Democrat, they're one and done. They ask about it and they dutifully move on to the next question.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we certainly, we saw that during the, during the, the last four years, right? I mean, the, 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 the reporters who rose to prominence in that room uh, were ones that were the most combative they possibly could be in, in ways that, you know, I would argue, you know, at least I would I can say I know from some of their colleagues, they, they weren't even necessarily proud of the performance of a Jim Acosta. Um, but it certainly helped raise his profile. Um it, so, so that fight that you have, it's not you know, it doesn't give you that. There's not that same incentive structure when it's this current administration. And that, that is also what I worry about. You know, what what is the incentive a reporter has today to be you know really adversarial with the current White House?
1: Well, that gets back to what we talked about before with the readership and the viewership of these newspapers and shows. They really don't have much of an incentive, do they, to go hard after Biden? When Jim Acosta became famous because he worked at CNN and went hard after Trump, which was great for CNN's viewers, who are overwhelmingly Democratic viewers, there is no similar incentive other than what they should have learned in journalism school and what you would hope guides their career, which is being fair and objective. But fair and objective is quaint, as Lester Holt talked about. (laughs) And so that's why they're one and done. That's why you don't see this natural rising up against something that Joe Biden has done or said. You know, when Joe Biden calls the Georgia law Jim Crow, was there an uprising by the press against Joe Biden for using a characterization that is wholly false, that does historical damage to what Jim Crow really was and how terrible Jim Crow, that whole era of almost 100 years, was for black Americans? They compare having to put a driver's license number on an absentee ballot to lynchings. They compare putting a driver's license on absentee ballot to voter means that used force to stop blacks from voting. I mean, what does that say about historical accuracy? What does it say when the press sits there acquiescently listening to Joe Biden misread history for the purpose of playing a race card? It just shows whose side the press is on. Why do they naturally rise as one to object to Trump, object to Bush, object to Republicans when Republicans make (laughs) certain statements, but they passively sit there when Democrats do? It shows whose side they're on. And they'll deny with a straight face that they're on anybody's side. But this is the breakdown of journalism today. And and, and frankly, Steve, you know, I'm writing a book about this. I'm, I'm writing a book called Broken. And I deal with these issues extensively. And one of the things you see in there is in the transition from Trump to Biden, numerous reporters, including Olivia Newsy of New Yorker magazine, she was quoted as saying how much action basically she got out of going after Trump, how it was great for her Twitter followership, how it was great for editors, how it was great for the mail that she received, how it got reporters booked on cable TV shows when you went after Trump. And then she said, I'm not going to get the same yes, ma'am, if I do that for Biden. In my social circle, it just won't feel as good. To paraphrase her, yeah, they know it. Reporters know it, and this is the bad joke about what journalism has become.
0: Yeah, and I would actually say, you know, one of the things Olivia has been on this podcast, and I said something that about um, about this that actually I, I think that you know she is i have to give her props for being you know transparent and and honest about it because you know she said um that it's going to be basically bad for reporters social lives if they are tough on biden and you know and she was saying in the context of i don't give a fuck about it i know i'm i'm that's that's literally like i believe a quote from her um but that that is that that is going to disincentivize other reporters in that room it's going to cause them to what she described as as you know, bring a level of cowardice toward Biden coverage um, because of that fact.
1: Here, Here's what she said, quote, on a purely social level, I don't know that reporting critically on Joe Biden will feel as safe for reporters. You're not going to get Yaz queen to death. Right. Yep. That's what she's I mean, she's just overt about it. And the problem is how many other reporters agree? And you can watch it in the briefing room. You can watch it at the Biden news conference. You can watch it when Yamichi Cinder praises Joe Biden's morality and decency and explains that's why people are coming illegally into America, as opposed to they're coming illegally into America because of Joe Biden's policies and undoing Donald Trump's.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I think that there is... Um, uh, there, there's the the political policy side. Certainly most journalists would, would, would not refute that they lean left. But then there is the like, OK, I've got a job to do. I can try to go above and beyond just my own personal feelings on it. And it also it does get to me that the one area that I think can, can you know, spur some action among the press is basically having the inability to do their job. And I I think about, you know, on the very first day, Jen Psaki talked about truth and transparency. We're going to bring transparency back. Well, you know, the, you know, I mean, there has absolutely not been any of that. And you look look at how how sheltered they've they've put the president of the United States when it comes to answering questions from reporters, um, and and even going back. to, I mean, this is a lot of ways feels like the Obamas, you know, uh, President Obama's third term with the with the the type of people that are, that are there. You know, that was a very non transparent administration. And there were the moments where the press did their best was when they pushed back against the ability to do their job by the, by an administration that was, uh, you know, in some instances when it comes to, you know, spying on phone records and, and, uh, you know, putting people in jail through, through, uh, uh espionage act, I, I mean, you know, sources there, I mean, that is a real threat to journalism. And I wonder if that continues, if that is what spurs some actual journalism.
1: Do you know what the event was that got the Obama white house press corps the most upset about in terms of access? Which one? It's when Barack Obama went to play golf with Tiger Woods. (laughs) And they only released photos from the White House photographer. The press went nuts. (laughs) That is the event that set them off the most. Because it was Tiger. And they wanted to hear him. (laughs) I mean, that is what upset them. Not policy. Not access for questions and serious governmental matters. It was Golf with Tiger Woods. I mean, this is the entertainment side of journalism. Right. And too many of them have lost their central mission of being deep reporters and they've accepted the, the entertainment side. And that's particularly true with TV people. You know, I, I still think there's a difference between the older school, particularly the older print reporters, who really do want to sit in that briefing room, ask serious, hard questions, get serious, hard answers. And have plenty of access to the president. I, I think there's still a strain of that in there, but it's it's receding.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, you like we mentioned CNN a couple of times. You were previously a contributor to CNN. Now you're a contributor at Fox News. Uh, you were at CNN 2011 to 2013. Actually, was was around the time that I was there uh, during those years as well. What was your experience yeah. like there? And and I would be curious to know now, uh, being on the outside versus when you were there on the inside. What do you think's changed? Because it seems like quite a bit has
1: changed. You know, it was very enjoyable when I was there. I knew I was joining a liberal network, uh, and I thought, that's good. Um, I was used to liberals. I was the press secretary. I'm used to reporters. And this is my chance now to be on a serious network and give a conservative alternative point of view. What I said was generally well-listened to by the, the anchors, Anderson Cooper, or even Don Lemon back at the time, uh, Wolf Blitzer. I always felt I like could have my say. Nobody ever told me what to say or what not to say. And so it was fair in that sense. Um, you know, I recognized that the issues they'd asked me about tilted left. Uh, there, there was that element even back then, and that's just the agenda that's set. What really changed was the arrival of Donald Trump, the arrival of uh, Jeff Zucker as the president of uh, CNN, And the breakdown of CNN's viewership as Fox increasingly beat CNN and conservatives or Republicans stopped watching CNN and migrated over to Fox, CNN's viewership tilted farther and farther left. All of that came together at the same time and made CNN lose its mind. I mean, the CNN that I work for is not the CNN of today. Today's CNN is so much more opinionated. Anchors lean far in, shape the news. In the little tidbits in between interviews, the things the anchors say are reflective of the morning meeting, where they're basically instructed by Zucker. Where here's CNN's thinking today. It's pretty shocking how one network could change so much, so badly, so anti-objective journalism, and that's what CNN has done.
0: Yeah. I've been a little surprised. You spent, so 2013, uh, you and I both were, were there. Jeff started in January 2013. And I actually, I, I've, I've been very open. I've, I really liked working with Jeff when I was there. I had pretty much only good experiences um, and, you know, was on a lot of those 9 a.m. phone calls that were, were later, you know, released. The, the ones from the, uh, last year were released by James O'Keefe at uh, right. Veritas. They sounded similar, uh, a little, you know, there were, there were certain things that felt different to me. Um, but the biggest change is what I would say is what what showed up on, on the network in terms of the, the consistent through line there. You know, there's this general sameness now. If you watch four o'clock or six o'clock or eight o'clock or 10 o'clock, it's all pretty much the same thing. A little bit of spin from, you know, from whoever's hosting it. Um, but that that was very different from that. I mean, the the, the idea that there's one story only, uh, it, it was not how it was even in 2013 when Jeff started, I would say.
1: Yeah, but I think editorially it was different back then too, because yeah. I, I, I would... It would really raise my hackles if I heard the the, uh, anchors talking the way they talk now. They just didn't. They asked questions. They didn't give away their game. And now, under Trump especially, they totally gave away their game. And it was an anti-Trump game. No, I didn't see that back in 11 through 13, no matter how they, for marketing purposes, Uh, covered different news items and whether they would recover the same item 10 times a day or just touch on it once. It was more they were a fundamental journalistic organization back then and it was encouraged to be that way. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. No, they, they would, you know, they, they, they've They. certainly when I was there, I remember in 2012 during the election, they would occasionally take heat for this, like both sidesism and and uh, oh, you know, we've got pundits from one and the other. And but it was like the fairness that rubbed the Twitter crowd the wrong way, which when in reality, what I would say is what I would hear from my most of my friends were not in the business and, and are still not in the business. Um, they appreciated that, you know, they appreciated being able to turn to a place that they felt like was unbiased and objective, and they could just right. get the news in twenty minutes or something, rather than trying to feel like, oh, this is just another source of kind of infotainment, uh, and and having to try to find another place to go to, to actually get the real story.
1: But you know, another side of this is CNN is their contributors. You know, contributors are well, people like me, guests who were brought on, uh, who had an expertise, and political contributors. Almost all the Republican contributors voted for Joe Biden for president.
0: Now, yeah, in 2020. They have
1: veneer of objectiveness by having objectivity, by having Republicans on, but what what kind of Republicans? And they're not anybody who can explain what Donald Trump is doing, or there's another side to the story. It's another way you put your finger on a scale if you run a TV network.
0: The fourth watch lightning round is coming up, but first reflecting on 9-11 nearly 20 years later. Let me ask you, before we get to kind of the the, the last little uh, lightning round, I want to talk a little bit about uh, 9-11, um, because we are now nearing uh, 20 years uh, since since 9-11 in, uh, in 2001, and... Uh, I have to say, you know, I was a senior in high school at the time. It's something that was a, obviously a, a big memory for me, like it was for many people in the country. I, I would say few people were as close to what was happening that day as you were. And, and and that's only seen really through those those Twitter threads, which you do every year on September 11th, which I think are fantastic and would strongly suggest people checking out. Um, but I, I want to ask a, a couple things about that, because I, I just I find that such a seminal moment and there, the what happened. After that, in the in the immediate aftermath, was so inspiring in a lot of ways, from a patriotic point of view, of people coming together in this country. What are what are some of the, the the lasting memories you have of that day and those days after?
1: Well, you're you're hundred percent right about the patriotic reaction, which is an eternal strength of our country. It's it's tragic it got brought out by an attack on our country, but our country rallies. And when we rally, we are one, and we are incredibly powerful. And I just remember the House um, Minority Leader Dick Gephardt on September 12th in the uh, Cabinet room saying to President Bush, you know, there are no Democrats in this room. There are no Republicans in this room. They're all Americans in this room. And he meant it. Yeah. And everybody felt that way. That's a throwaway line. You hear politicians say it a lot. No, on September 12th, it was palpable. That was the mood of America. Um, you know, that was manifest when George Bush threw out that first pitch at Yankee Stadium. And the, the crowd in New York roared USA, USA. Right. I mean, those were the um, unbelievably emotional, palpable, palpable moments where you knew America was just different. We were one. And when we're a united country, there's so much we can do. And it just feels good to be able to. See somebody from across the aisle you might disagree with on a certain issue. Work with you on one other issue, on this issue. I don't know how to get back to those days, absent another attack, which obviously is it's not worth it. You don't want it. But our country was attacked. People were hurting. And America rallied. And I worked for a president who helped lead that rally. Because I think people saw in him a leader who was doing what America needed and what America wanted at the time and that was my service that's what I saw during my service when I was at the White House It was a different era yeah
0: it, it was I, I I've been to the to the George Bush uh, Center here in Dallas where I, I live now a couple times and I think if, if anyone is, has not been there I would I would strongly suggest you go I think it's a it's an incredible um, you know monument to to really what what happened. But one of the things I, I always remember about that, walking through there and, and, you know, even in, in his book after was the humility that came from it, you know, and and, and that, that's also something I think is missing today in politics, in our media, in social media. There, there's so often a rush to like, to, to just, just, I'll assume that you know that you're you're right about everything. You know everything, uh, and I think it's you know it's a problem on both sides to be honest. Um, but I, I want if you can talk for a second just about that, the humility aspect of it because I, I think that that was a time that certainly we didn't know what was going on. We just got finished a year of of you know a very you know much unknown in this pandemic. I would say a lot of people acted like they knew exactly what was going on when no one knew what the hell was happening. Um, but that that's, that feels very different than twenty years ago in the leadership we had.
1: It shouldn't have been. I think the pandemic is one of those issues where, had things been handled a little bit differently in terms of tone, the country could feel a bit differently than it does. But, you know, George Bush ran, as as he put a uniter, not a divider, when he was governor of Texas, he famously had a fantastic relationship with the Democratic president of the Senate, who happened to be the lieutenant governor, the way Texas works. He was the most powerful politician in the state. And he and Bush were simpatico. And it led to fantastic bipartisan reforms in the state of Texas. And that's what Bush wanted to carry into the White House. It was his nature. It's who he is. You know, Bush is half his father, half his mother. The fatherly half is that courtly, gracious, old school half. And the mother's half is the half that can throw a pretty mean elbow under the boards when necessary. <laughs>
0: right,
1: so that, that, That's who he was, and he knew how to do both.
0: Yeah. Well, hoping we to get a little bit more of that on, uh, on all the different areas. So, uh, uh, all right. Well, let's go to six questions, 60 seconds. Ari, where were you born?
1: New York City, Manhattan.
0: All right. You're a Fox News contributor and run Fleischer Communications. What's one benefit and one cost of those jobs?
1: Um... One benefit is I work in sports, and so I have a lot of fun clients who my son is really interested in. Uh, The downside to it is you're always on call. Your phone rings and you're, you're back to work on a weekend or on a vacation.
0: Who's someone who's been a mentor for you?
1: Arthur Finkelstein. Arthur was a political consultant on my very first campaign in 1982. He taught me a tremendous amount about the country, about politics, about human nature uh, and what in politics appeals to somebody and what distracts them or pushes them away. Um, I should also add, Arthur uh, was one of the first gay Republicans, out gay Republicans in politics. Uh, he had a husband. Arthur died two years ago, uh, was one of the first to get married in a gay marriage. Um most wonderful man and i miss him
0: well who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people
1: oh i'd have to put a little thinking cap on on that it's hard to come off the top of my head um i'm gonna have to I'll have to rain check that one for a minute.
0: All right. We'll come back to that one. Uh, who's one person in the media you think's really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention?
1: Well, lately, I've been interested in Glenn Greenwald. Uh, he and I clashed famously over the Iraq war yeah. and over a lot of national security issues. But I've increasingly been enjoying reading him because he reminds me of an old-fashioned principled ACLU leader. And I have a sense of admiration for people like that. Uh, because he, he fights for causes, even if he doesn't agree with the people, but if he thinks the cause is the big picture, good cause. And that's something noble about that. It's something that we used to do a lot of in this country. And now it just seems we put on whatever hat is temporarily helpful to our team. Um, so I've been increasingly reading his stuff. I subscribe to his sub That's
0: great. One year from today, what's one prediction for the media?
1: things will get worse. The, the media is going to continue its downward spiral of losing trust with the American people. And they won't care. The economics work. So as long as they have the readers and viewers, they can be that way. But good old-fashioned old fashioned objective journalism is on the ropes.
0: Well, on that positive note, Ari, we'll leave it there. <laughs> Thanks for doing this.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much to Ari Fleischer. Really great to talk to him. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. You can subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And please download, like, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Next episode, join me. We've got former Gawker founding editor Elizabeth Spires. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.